2: anelli uh, nelly wanders, Go mani, dear mani, yellow
3: Oriel is an undefined region. Over the centuries, the past thousand years, it would have moved right over to sometimes to Fermanagh and Tyrone, but generally re- regarded as a literary region in which there were a lot of poets and musicians over the centuries and so you can't say exactly where it is but it encompasses maybe North Louth, um, South Armagh, parts of Monaghan, uh, skirting along Newry borders into County Down and sometimes into Meath. So that is the general wider Oriel region and of course at the heart of that is South Armagh and Omeath, where the last Irish speaker survived mainly. So that is the Oriel Gothard, Omeath, South Arma and Monaghan to an extent.
2: Well,
3: my name is Padre Dean I'm a native of County Louth. I was born here. Uh, my father was from Laois, and my mother was from Armagh and I grew up with knowing about the Irish speakers and the singers that were on the outskirts of Dundalk and the Oamith and South Armagh regions from my father, who would have come under the influence, in fact his mentor was Larkon O'Murri. So I grew up with the knowledge that the Gaeltacht was just at the back door so to speak. After schooling and university in Monaghan and Dublin, I came back as a married woman and settled in the heart of Oriel in South Armagh, and that is where I am based since 1983. So I am straddling the border all the time because I was a teacher in the Girls' School in Dundalk for many years, and then I took—I uh, left that to follow a career in music and song full time. The word Oriel is a translation of Irile Riecht Erile. It was a kingdom, but what we were fortunate about in Oriel and why it's different from other regions throughout Ireland is that it was a focus for collectors coming from Belfast and Dublin around the turn of the 20th century, just shortly after the Gaelic League was founded in I think 1895. This area had a nucleus of poets and harpers and many, many scribes who realised that the material was disappearing, and the only way to preserve the material and remember what was handed down orally was to, to, to write it down. And uh, there were over 600 uh, manuscripts collected in this area that still survive, but the same amount, if not more, were destroyed.
4: Well, we're on the back road in Lesley. But the interesting thing here is that if we look carefully along the road, we can see the remains of a number of little cottages, possibly seven or eight altogether if you take converted sheds and so on. But well, this is the heart of the Amith Gilsal. the the back road here in Lesley, where we can see the cluster of cottages that were here, say, in the famine times, the years thereafter. This was a little self-enclosed community. You can properly call it a Tlachan. What I believe was going on here if we look at the Griffith valuation maps for the area from the 1850s was that this land was held in common by a group of families living in these little houses under what was known as the old Irish Rundale system. So that little strips of ground here and there would be negotiated with the landlord. We have also reports that the landlords before the famine, uh, that their agents were afraid to come up this road collecting their rent. So what they did was they did a deal with some strong local person, usually known as Antisach. Uh, and that person would negotiate a lease On behalf of a number of families, this ground here there was a fifty-five acre holding, and definitely we can see nine separate names on one lease in the eighteen fifties. Well, my name is Seamus Murphy, and I live in Carnamuckla, which is the most northerly of the ten townlands. In the parish of Omeath. I've been here 16 years but I, I've known the area all my life and I've always been fascinated by this place stuck between the mountains and the sea where the language survived long after uh, it was gone everywhere else. But when people study why the Giltat survived here They tend to reach for the same explanations that have been used for the survival of the gale tacta in the uh, western seaboard and primarily for isolation. But the thing about Omeath is that it was within a couple of hours walking distance of Newry and four hours walking distance of Dundalk. These were major urban centers when the Guildhack was thriving here 200 years ago, so you couldn't say it was isolated. Also, the people here on the mountain in Omeath were living cheek by jowl with an English-speaking community of fishermen and traders down on the shore. I believe it survived because it became a place of last refuge for people from other Gaeltacht throughout Ulster primarily, places like the Sperrins, Cady, South Armagh and South Down.
3: From the beginning of the 17th century to the end of the 18th century, roughly, there was a continuous line of poets in the area of Oriel, particularly South Armagh and Omith, And their work, a lot of their work was written down or transcribed by scribes who knew the wealth and understood the importance of the work. So one of the key figures there was Seamus al who had been born in Omeath and who travelled. And what's interesting about Seamus al he's regarded a very fine poet. He had one foot in the old Bardic tradition and he wrote some poems in that in that style and he was also one foot in the new song tradition so he combined sort of different styles of poetry. So it's a key area for the poetic tradition, for the literary tradition For the harp tradition, for the oral song tradition, and then hand in hand, as the remnants of that were beginning to disappear, in come other collectors as well as the scribes who had been there for centuries before. Some were interested in song, some were interested in story, some were interested in phonetics, some were interested in music. The major gap, of course, was the oral tradition dying out that the with the language with the language uh, coming to an end as the vernacular of the of the community. the oral tradition came to a sudden stop so then 30, 40, 50 years later, I come along and I'm a singer. And what traditional singers like to do is they like to represent the the, the material and the corpus of their own area. So you'll find Connemara singers singing Connemara songs. Munster singers, Kerry singers singing Kerry songs. Donegal singers singing Donegal songs. What you had in the the north of Ireland were a lot of singers singing Donegal songs, not realising the wealth of material that they had on their own doorstep. So when I came along and I I began to research the songs that I knew, I knew there were were about four or five songs left in this area that had survived in the oral tradition. But I start then to research some of the collections and there was no music with them because the collectors weren't uh, qualified to write music down. And then I began to research that more and more to see if I could remarry the words with music. And that is at the heart of A Hidden Ulster. I was recreating a song tradition. (laughs) But in that process I realised this is not about dry words or music on a page. This is about people. This is what they had carried for centuries and centuries. I felt a great sadness coming through from the collectors and the last speakers, the old women and the old men, particularly you know, in Omese and South Armagh. So I realised it was very, very important to, to, to make this a human story and it was about our own people it was about our own traditions it was about, about our own cultural heritage If I did nothing else, it was to uh, reawaken the memory of that so that people would realise what we had in our own community. We didn't have to look to Connemara. We didn't have to look to Donegal. This was the mecca for a cultural uh, heritage that that was inspirational for so many publications and collections and just a wonderful wealth.
2: (laughs) All go crazy with the people. jorin
5: Well, we're now in the townland of Drumulla in Omeath, which I think means a uh, little hills, and it's a sp- spectacular view, and we're overlooking Carlingford Lock, and we're at the cottage of uh, Michael McCardle, better known as Mickey Skelter, during the Irish college times in Omeath. He was a storyteller, and he actually is the bearded man that is on the cover of Padre Kini, Houlahan's book, A Hidden Ulster, and his cottage has been restored and, and the photograph that I have now was taken 10 years ago when the cottage was in a process of being preserved and it's lovely to look at today. I, I didn't really know that it looked as good as this. Hi my name is Anne McCone, near and I'm omeath born and bred. I'm secretary of common Omay, Omeath Historical Society I was born in the O'Meath Park Hotel and that sparked my interest in the Irish College and the Irish speakers that were in O'Meath.
4: If you look at the photographic record of the Irish College from 1912 to 1926, it's perfectly obvious Mickey was a star turn among the students. He appears in more pictures than anybody else. He's always sitting down, The students are always standing around him and Mickey's giving it the whole nine yards with some good yarn or other if you look at the size of the windows of the cottage it suggests it's not very old it's not from the 1700s for example because in the 1700s there was the window tax which restricted the size of windows in fact that's when the half door came in in Ireland because people built their house facing south with the half door uh, to save the tax on one window they probably maybe didn't have any window Uh, the, the Irish Parliament introduced, I can't remember when it was in the mid 1700s, introduced the window tax, which gives right, rise to one of the most famous sayings in the English language. It was daylight robbery.
0: Yeah. Well, my name is Roisin Mulligan. I am the current chair of Commons to which is the Omeh Historical Society. And we have been in existence now. This We're about to start our six, 17th year. We started in 2002. With myself and Anne McKeown, who is our secretary, we decided to set up the historical society because we felt that there was an awful lot of the history was disappearing we felt that some of the older people who had an awful lot of knowledge were dying off and a lot of it was being lost so we decided at that time to try and capture as much of it as we could Well, in 2012, we celebrated the centenary of the establishment of Colossian Brether. It was established in 1912 and ran here in Omeath until 1926. There was an overlap of one year between Omeath and Donegal and from 1926 on in Ranafast, Colossian Breda as we knew it, was relocated to Ranafast. When it was set up, the president of the college was Owen McNeill. Um Some of the other well-known figures who were involved were Douglas Hyde, Patrick Pierce, Father Larry Murray and James Connolly visited the college as well. Now the first few years of the college you have to remember that the students in Colossia Breda were not young pupils. They were actually teachers who came from all over the country to study the Omeath dialect. So on completion of the course here in Omeath, they would have received certification and they would have gained a teaching qualification in Irish. And they brought the Omeath Irish back with them to their schools all over the country. Younger students would have come on board in the latter years, much like Ranafast. But the first few years of the college... It was all teachers. The key
3: collector in the whole O'Meath collection story would have been Lorcan O'Murray. He was born in Carlingford. There's a plaque still above the door of his house in Carlingford where he was born. And uh, although his father, I don't know, I don't think came from, from Carlingford. He went on to be a priest and then he was uh, over in the States. And after the college was founded in 1912, he came back every single summer, which I think was about 3 weeks each way on ship um, to collect the material in the hills of County Lias and the Omeath area so larkin was a key key collector he liked the people you could that comes across in his in his work that he loved the people he named them a lot of collectors didn't name who the, the people larkin and murray named everyone which says something about him and his value for the people who gave the material so he was honoring them by naming them So most of the material, while the other teachers were going back into the college in the evening to have their tea and all the rest, as soon as the day was over teaching, he would take himself off up into the hills and writing down the material. And we owe him a great debt.
5: now we're still in the townland of Drumulla, and we have the hill of Lesle behind us in Omeath and we're overlooking uh, the Mourne Mountains on Carlingford Lock. And the field adjoining Mickey McArdle's house, there was a house there, and I believe that Bridget Casserly—that was her residence. It has it has been demolished now, and Bridget Casserly is the lady that's on the cover of Padrakeen Nee Hulaghan's book, A Hidden Ulster. As far as I know, I think uh, Bridget Casserly passed away around the 1930s because we have an obituary written as Gaelic by Padder uh, O'Doode in her memory when, when that happened. Br-
4: Br- Bridge was known as Bridge Nahauran and uh, the Casserly family, uh, my understanding is that they came here from North Monaghan uh, in the time of the plantation of Ulster, or possibly the Cromwell in wars. Um, there's, it's not a, a, a name that's known in this area, but it's common enough in Monaghan. We have them listed on a rent book for Cornamook, townland, for 1784. And going back a bit further, there's the famous song about the hurling match of Bavin. And there's a Brian O'Castly, uh, Stanton and Gold's, during that match so they've been here a long long time. Some of the key
3: sources for poems, songs, prayers, numbers, stories were in particular Kitty Hyan Dobbins. Uh, by all accounts Kitty had a great wealth of songs and great wealth of of. of poetry. Some of them could recite a thousand lines, imagine. Then there was Bridge Castley, she seems to have been a great character and a favourite among the students who came to learn Irish. A hearty woman, always ready to tell a story and tell a, sing a song and sit on, the, sit on the wall, on the stone wall and she started singing. And So again you can see the personality behind Briege and she wears a lovely, unique sort of a scarf, a knitted scarf. Um, Bridge Nanoran, if you're called Nanoran you are known to be a singer.
6: We nominate to lay on grass, eh? Egg a patriname. We take our sweet frolic, it's classy, eh? narge, eh, your patriname. O vengeance magralom gehned ich so lay all lay on our sleeping. me
3: she was recorded by Wilhelm Degen. and so we can hear the sound so we've got we've got words we've got music we've got photograph we've got sound so you've got a fair bit of fragments that you can put together and recreate who these people were <laughs>
6: <inaudible> degell, degell,
3: degell, 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 degell. Wilhelm Dagen came with an assistant called Carl Temple, and they were recording language and dialect throughout the country. And in 1931, so you can, there was, it was still known as an area of Irish speakers in 1931, and they were brought to Queen's University, as far as I know, and recorded. And there was a number of people from this area recorded, including um, Kitty McGivern, um, Banny McGivern the
6: sane.
3: He wasn't interested in song, he was interested in words and sound. And in some instances you could hear one of them singing naturally and she stops then and recites it, which is something that's quite hard to do, recite a song that you know as a song.
4: We're in the townland of Baven. On the flat ground down in the valley below us, there was a hurling match played sometime in the early 1700s, which was actually commemorated in uh, 2012 on the 100th anniversary of the setting up of the Irish College in Omid colossia vrige The hurling match of Bavan, there's a, a, a long song, about it. It's considered to be the earliest uh, full account of a GAA game. The rules and hurling were a bit different at the time. My understanding according to what I heard is that the match may have gone on for several days and at least one person was killed. What we do know from the song is quite interesting because the person standing in the goals at one end was called Brian O'Casley, and that, of course, is the family name of on Bridge, Bridge Casley or Casserley. So that family was certainly here from the early 1700s.
0: So Colossia Breather was set up in 1912 and remained until 1918. In what people would know as the Park Hotel, which was actually a private residence called Omith Park. That was the residence of John Opens Woodhouse, who was a solicitor from Portadown. John Opens Woodhouse himself was deceased by this time, but his son Curran Opens Woodhouse had leased the entire house out to Collage Tabreta. Owen O'Neill was the president of Colossi Tabreta. He came and stayed in the Strand Hotel here in Omeath. He was um, probably most famous as the man who countermanded the order to rebel in 1916. He was the leader of um, the Irish Volunteer Force. He was a fabulous scholar of the Gaelic language. He was professor of ancient Gaelic studies in UCD. He brought his children here for the...
1: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: We have some nice photographs of him and his family outside the Strand Hotel. And Mrs Tierney, who was his daughter, she returned many years later to Omeath Park, when it was the Park Hotel, and she, she wanted to be shown around and she remembered this was the library and this was where we did our studies and this was where the classes took place and this is where we had our ceilies and she was very informative.
4: Hublock na Heron, the provisional government of the Irish Republic to the people of Ireland. Irish men and Irish women, in the name of God and the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom.
0: We have Having heard the rumour that the proclamation was signed in Omeath Park. We have no Irish documentary evidence. It has always been local lore, if you like. Um, my personal opinion is that the oration given by Pierce over the grave of Jeremiah O'Donovan Ross in 1915 is the document that was written up there. Because in 1915 they weren't allowed to, ha- to hold public gatherings but they were, of course, allowed to have public funerals and they used O'Donovan Ross's funeral as an opportunity to spread the word, to get the people roused for the rising which was coming in the following year, 1916
4: signed on behalf of the provisional government thomas j clark sean mcdirmidda thomas mcdonough ph pierce
0: Patrick pierce and his brother willie were regular visitors to O'Meath James because Padley. pierce loved the irish language and Joseph. he came here again to be immersed in the gaelic um, he wasn't on the teaching staff of Kalash de but he was a regular visitor to the college. One of the schoolmasters here for many years, Kieran Cullen, was a witness to Podrick, Willie and their mother, Mrs Pierce, taking part in a ceilidh in Omeath Park.
3: So the other key person in this area would be been Padre Padro Padre O'Doode. Dabbled in a lot of different aspects. Um, He he actually could write music. Uh, He composed some music. He was a very good photographer. He was interested in technology of the time. Uh, He was interested in place names, uh, and he was interested in teaching. And he taught song as well. He brought a lot of the songs from Oriel up to Donegal. That's why. Songs like Urchilichragon and Urchra Cainba Conscious of in the Donegal Gaeltacht. He would have brought them in the early days of the college. Uh, he was very active in Oatmeath. He was teaching in the college and he was from County Louth.
0: Father O'Doo, there was a Dundalk man who had fabulous Irish. His Irish was so good that he presented to the nation a translation of the Bible into Gaelic. And he kept up his links with Omith being a regular visitor. And one of the quirky things about him is that it's thanks to Padre O'Duda that we have the photographs that we have of Kalash Jabrida because he was the elected photographer for the college. And each of their outings and gatherings, it was Padre O'Duda who took the photographs.
5: Now we are now in the townland of Ardahi at Ardahi National School. It was built in 1882, and records state that there were 205 pupils attending the school. It only, although it was only a two-roomed building and it looks quite small, but attendance over a six-month period stated that only 65% of those people actually attended the school it was replaced in 1954 by a new school which was built in Baven but it was still called Ardahi National School or otherwise St Bridget's School the Ardahi school was the main school for children that were living in the mountain area in the village of Uveith over and it was used over 60 years
4: well, the odd thing about Omeath is that it has two national schools and as far as I can see they're slightly less than one mile apart which I think is pretty unique in rural Ireland but my understanding is that it reflects divisions that go back a fair way and in a way right back to the plantation of Ulster. We're here in Ardahi and if you take the names here in the sleigh and in Bavin townland They are typical family names of Armagh, Monaghan and even as far away as Tyrone. And when the national schools were set up in the 1830s, my understanding is that the people on the shore who were generally English-speaking and had been for well over a 100 years, preferred that their children would not mix with the Irish-speaking children in the mountain districts of Omeath who were from, if you like, a different tradition and background. Over the years, there have been proposals on a number of occasions to amalgamate the two schools, but they have met with resistance. And now these two, two schools are thriving, the numbers are good in both, and it's very unlikely that they would be merged in, in the foreseeable future.
3: There was a movement of people throughout Ulster at various stages as a result of the plantations. You would have got it. Movement towards the poorer areas. We also must remember that Omeath was Ulster. So then you go to South Armagh and you get go, go into the hilly areas of Omeath. So the last speakers were mainly in the hills. They weren't down along the shore. They were up in the hills. This was very much Ulster. The poets would have seen themselves as Ulster. The scribes would have seen themselves as Ulster. The dialect was Ulster. The song tradition were songs common to Donegal and other greats in, in Ulster, in the north. Most definitely, Oriel and Omeath and County Louth was Ulster. From maybe Drogheda down, the Pale Boundary would have been more significant. But um, most definitely Ulster. <laughs>
0: In 1918, the college moved to the INF, or the Irish National Forester's Hall, which had been newly erected in the village of Omeath. And the foresters were a benevolent society which helped out anybody who was in financial trouble. They would have been made up of the commercial businessmen of the area who would have given financial assistance. Well, the hostel was built by Colas de Breda. It didn't become known as the Onoga hostel until much later. And it was set up as a dormitory, as a residential area for the students to stay in. Boys stayed with, the, with local families and the girls stayed in the dorms. So obviously up until the hostel as it became known, or the dorm, provided accommodation for girls, everybody, male and female, would have stayed with local families. So, when it came to 1925 26, the numbers had dwindled somewhat in the number of students who were attending the college, and there was a feeling among the powers that be that Omeath was becoming too commercialized, the numbers of Irish speakers were dwindling, and it was felt that the college should move. There was also a culture at the time, there was no opening hours in Northern Ireland on a Sunday in the public houses and a lot of northern people came to Omith by train, by boat and by road. And it was felt mostly by the clergy that this was not a suitable location for the college. So Father Larry Murray s- sought uh, an alternative location and he found Ranafast in County Donegal and the college was moved to Ranafast.
3: The last known fluent speaker of Irish uh, in the Omeath area was Anna E Anlun, Anna O'Hanlon, and she died in 1969. Now, what's interesting about Anna was she was the daughter of Kitty Han Dobbins, one of the most famous and most important sources for song and story and folklore in the area. But Kitty Han Dobbins didn't speak Irish. To Anna, it was she learned her Irish from her aunt. She was fostered out to Alice Dobbins and she learned her Irish from Alice Dobbins.
5: Yeah, we are now about 200 metres away from our old Ardahi National School on the far side of the road. We are now in the townland of Bavin and the townland of Ardahi is right behind me and I'm looking at the site of where a house stood, where it was the house of Kitty Shan Dobbin Uh, She was a prize-winning spinner and singer and storyteller at the time of the Irish College in Omeath. And she was Anya O'Hanlon's mother. So this is, where, this is the spot where Anya O'Hanlon was brought up as a young child. Uh, this is the spot where Anya O'Hanlon lived. And I'm looking at a photograph now of the house. It was, this photograph was taken maybe about 20 years ago and the house was renovated. But it originally consisted of a two-roomed cottage. And there was a cow buyer all under the same roof. And her aunt Alice lived just about two fields away from this house and Anne O'Hanlon was taught Irish by her aunt Alice because I believe as a child On Hanlon spent a lot of time in the other Dobbin house because there was a daughter in that house, her name was Betty and On Hanlon had no way, she had a, a brother a little bit older than her that lived in this house but her older sisters had gone to Wales. With Kitty Ann Dobbins, the
3: feature in Kitty Ann is her little frilly bonnet, and I think that might have been a feature of widow women who wore their little frilly bonnet and the dark cloak. Uh, she seems to have been an amazing character. She was a prize spinner, and there are photographs of her. When you have photographs, you can put, you know, flesh on on the name of the person. So, the photographs are key. To me the photographs were very exciting when I came across the old glass plates and I'd hold them up against the light and look through them and I'd recognize a little frilly bonnet or something and I realized that these were photographs taken by Pedro Duda of the people who sang the songs and told the stories. That was a breakthrough for me in knowing who these people were and identifying with them and creating a connection that I loved with them. I could feel them when I saw them in the picture.
5: Yeah, well, we're now standing in the townland of Lislay, still overlooking the Mourne Mountains, and we're looking at the house of Anya O'Hanlon. I was fortunate enough to remember this lady. As a three-year-old child, I came here with my uncle. He was delivering gas and I can always remember outside the gate of the house, my uncle came back to the van and he handed me a handful of sweets and he said that Mrs O'Hanlon told me to give those to you because you both shared the same name, which was Anne Dobbin. Well, uh, as far as I know, my Great grandfather and Anya O'Hanlon's father were brothers.
7: My name is Sean O'Hanlon. I'm a grandson of Anya O'Hanlon. And my father was Dan O'Hanlon. I'm outside the house here at this O'Meat where I grew up with my grandmother. I lived here with her until she uh, died in 1968. I uh, lived here with my mother and my father and my grandmother. Three, of The uh, four of us lived here. And I was with her for the first nine years, ten years of my life. In that time she spoke a lot a lot of Irish. Uh, a lot of the Irish she spoke was natural to her, and she would uh, break it up with small amounts of English. Even when she was speaking English, she would introduce Irish words naturally into the conversation, which we would have understood at the time, but unfortunately, we didn't pick up enough to become. Uh, fluent or competent in the language. Uh, my father uh, did not speak Irish either. There, um, it wasn't passed down to him and it wasn't passed on to me. The reason my father gave at the time was that Irish was seen um, was not seen as beneficial to any uh, income or any to, to better yourself because most of the people in our area either went to England to work and English was of much more benefit to them then and Irish was seen as something that could maybe hold them back. So I don't think for that reason that it was passed down, either maybe not on purpose, but that was the way it happened. In the 60s, my grandmother and another local Irish speaker, Pete Sloan, were invited by RTE to Ballymascanlon Hotel. to partake in an interview. And I remember the night fairly well that RTE came, they sent a car for her, and they collected her, and then they collected Pete Sloan, and they went to Ballymascanlon.
8: Ag ag the yeah. cool. cool like D- a- cool like Gaelic, de goe- hmm. mm. well, like I like the war. Oh, big, good, I took a lot
2: of uncle, I a look. Take him. to Haina Gaelic Well, good, I could say. I my I was a room more
4: Broadly speaking, she was the last of the fully native Irish speakers, the people who spoke Irish from birth. Uh, you know, she 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 was bilingual, obviously, uh, but uh, she was the end of of a very long chain. And it's not just a matter of the language. She was the end of a whole way of life and society.
3: Well, we'll start at recent times. If the likes of Anna O'Hanlon didn't pass it on to her children, it was because she was a practical woman, obviously. The community wasn't speaking it, so why should she be the proselytiser for a language that was dead around her as far as she was concerned? Purely practical. Go a step farther to when Irish was the community language. The key question there is to ask... Why did a whole generation of people not speak to their children? Fill that gap with the word fear. So when fear kicks in, it just takes over in a sense. And there was a fear of the Catholic Church in relation to the languages, which is something that people do not realise at all. There was a fear about the system, the schooling system. We all know about the the bathyscore or the stick that was put around children's necks, that if they spoke Irish, they went home and they got slapped. So there's fear in the younger generation, fear. And fear generates hatred and resentment and grievance. So this was projecting itself onto the language. You've got a collective communal fear of something that is intimate and an expression of who they are so uh, it's a massive effect on a community and I think we're only beginning to recover from that.
5: Now we're in the townland of Bavin and I'm outside uh, Pete Sloane's house. Uh, This is situated on the New Line Road which leads to the Long Woman's grave. And I'm looking at a lovely photograph of him tending to his fields which was obviously taken at this house. I'm also looking at another photograph that was taken at the opening of uh, the Omeath college 1912 in omeath park and sitting on the podium is kitty Shan dobbin owen McNeil, mrs stopford green uh, an irish enthusiast and a father michael but there's also a young boy on the podium and i believe that maybe this is possibly pete sloan because as a 12 year old boy at that opening he actually sang Pete Sloane was also interviewed with Mrs O'Hanlon in Ballymacshandlane Hotel by RTÉ sometime in the mid 60s.
8: Well, and couldn't Chan son turn chalastion shaw, chalastion Oh, ta ta, couldn'ta my head go my he's coming I guess as much as nobody may go to the in scale, I'm Negaligory on Balletlea could you may Douglas Hayden, August guess we Mr. Seussar and uh Renardan, I and and though. So uh g uh g for the Graham mean I guess my father Douglas. As Miss Evan McCann, as I was living in a Maith, I heard a lot about the history of the Irish language in the meath. I just made up my mind one day, and I'm going to learn the Irish language, because I always remember the old saying, you know, So I actually believe that there, and I believe that it's very important that people should identify themselves with their own native language, you know. So with all this here history and one thing or another, I met people like Andrew McGinnis, Conor McNulty, Seamus Murphy, Barodo Sullivan. So... When we first started off in Omeath here, we started off in uh, Corner House and we just put a few notices around the place that uh, we were going to start an Irish language uh, Kirkle Cora. So, what happened was the Kirkle Cora took off and people started coming to it. Nights we had 14, 15, 20 people. So, we decided we would have a Jane course, which was a weekend course for Irish speakers, people to come to learn it. And that was really successful. So taking us on board, I thought it would be a good idea to open our own centre, Aris and in Armeath. And we got this building of Seamus McQuaid, who was very, very good just for the whole time we were there. So, so when we decided to open Aris and we had to discuss, uh, would we affiliate a affiliate attendee group or whatever? And of course... Uh, the most prominent organisation has always been uh, Conor and the Ever since they were formed, uh, they have been remote in the Irish language, so it just seemed to me to be the right thing to do, you know, to keep the history of Conor and the going, like, and support Conor and the So we did do that, and we joined Conor and the We opened uh, the RS in 2014, I think it was, without very little money, to be honest with you, but we started to run the ranks and charge people for, uh, you know, the, the ranks. And we were able to keep going. And then we were looking out for grants and stuff. And the early couple of years, we got no grants from nobody. Uh, we had to do it all on our own. I raffled a few harps and stuff. and So that kept us going for a year or two. So we reluctantly decided to close the RS. And to, to go back to the Roots again, we didn't fail in the project. We made it close to the RS, but we didn't fail in the project. We have an Irish language walk in association with the, the local Cornamuckla pub every Sunday, every fortnight. And we do speak Irish on it. We have a Kirkel Cora that is still continuing every Wednesday night. And we run it guest uh, a couple of months ago there and it done well. But from now on I think it's time to re-energise the whole project. We're, go- we're just actually at this period of time... Uh, sitting back and discussing the way forward. One thing that has happened is that we have put the Irish language on the map in the minds of the people in Omeath. You know, they're starting to realise, you know, our history was that we were Irish speakers. There are people again speaking the the, the language in Omeath. People from all over the country have heard about what we've been doing. So Omeath is firmly in in the minds of people. Uh, So we have a wealth of People in the area, you know, who can promote it and have the abilities to promote it, and I have no doubt will going forward promote the Irish language in the area, you know.
0: Oh, I think there's been a big interest in reviving the Irish language here in Umies. I think that it's very important for the people to re establish their own language and to use it. It is far from dead, it just needs to be bolstered and resurrected.
3: There's a great sense of pride in omith, a great sense of pride and wonder at the uniqueness and the beauty of the cultural inheritance that they have, And the next step will be to assimilate it into the community again. So it's not the next generation, it is now, it is we. <coughs> The forgotten gale talked was produced by Little Road Productions Limited for LMFM Radio and funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence
2: fee.